Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is World Report. Good morning. I'm Marcia Young. Federal Health Minister Mark Holland has tabled the bill paving the way for National Pharmacare. It is an essential part of the supply and confidence agreement between the Liberals and the NDP. Janice McGregor is on the story for us from Ottawa. Janice, what does this bill look like? This is expected to be a single-payer plan to cover everyone, but it wouldn't cover every drug, at least not initially. Something the Parliamentary Budget Officer estimated last fall would cost governments over $11 billion. That kind of money isn't coming in this spring's budget. Instead, they're starting with two large categories of drugs. Prescriptions for the roughly 4 million diabetics in Canada will now be covered, as will medications for millions of others at risk of diabetes. And the Liberals are poised to finally keep their 2019 election promise to cover sexual and reproductive health medications, not only meeting the contraception needs of millions but perhaps setting up a useful political wedge with social conservatives because the morning after pill, for example, could be covered under that category. We'll see today if the government gives us a budget preview, estimates how much starting with just these two categories of drugs will cost initially. But the NDP's hope is that this is only the beginning. More drugs to come as future budgets allow. But healthcare is provincial jurisdiction. Is there consensus among the provinces on this bill? No. British Columbia and Manitoba both have provincial NDP governments, and they're supportive. They're likely to be the first movers here to sign on. But even without seeing the bill, Alberta and Quebec have said no thank you. Something New Democrat Alexandre Boulouris yesterday said would be a mistake. 25% of people in Canada are not taking the medication they need for their own health. It's, it's incredible. And the cost, the collective cost of this is unmanageable. Un- so, you know, if Daniel Smith and Francois Legault want to take that road, they will have to explain to their own citizens. Other provinces remain in wait-and-see mode, as with the childcare deals, getting buy-in across the board might come down to how much money's on the table. All right, thank you, Janice. You're welcome. The CBC's Janice McGregor reporting from Ottawa. The federal government is reimposing visa restrictions on Mexican nationals visiting Canada. Immigration Minister Mark Miller made the announcement earlier this morning. It goes into effect later today. As of today, at 11.30 p.m. Eastern, Mexican citizens will need a visa to come to Canada or obtain a valid electronic travel authorization if they hold a valid U.S. non-immigrant visa or have held a Canadian visa in the past 10 years and are traveling by air on a Mexican passport. The Liberal government relaxed visa restrictions for Mexican nationals in 2016, but Miller says a greater number of asylum seekers from the country has prompted the government to reintroduce the measure. Both Joe Biden and Donald Trump are venturing south to separate Texas border towns today. Millions of undocumented migrants are entering the U.S. It has become a high-stakes political issue heading into November's presidential election. And the CBC's Richard Madden is in Washington. Richard, what can we expect today? 
Yeah, I think we can expect to see a highly choreographed split-screen rivalry where Joe Biden and Donald Trump will offer competing views on how to fix America's immigration system. This has emerged as one of the key issues in November's election. Biden will head to the border town of Brownsville, where he's expected to pressure Congress to revive that bipartisan border security deal that Republicans supported until former President Trump told them to reject it. Now, this plan would tighten asylum restrictions and create daily limits on border crossings. This will be Biden's second trip to the border since taking office, which many view as a notable change in strategy to become more forceful to address illegal immigration, one of Biden's biggest vulnerabilities in this election. And how about Trump and the Republicans? Yeah, so Donald Trump will be about 500 kilometers away at Eagle Pass. That's a hot spot for illegal crossings. Now, Trump built his political career on portraying illegal immigrants as criminals and promising to build a wall along the border. He's since promised mass deportations if he wins the elections and took aim at illegal immigrants on social media. Our country is being overrun by criminals by murderers, by drug addicts. They're all coming in through Joe Biden's horrible open border. Now, these two leaders don't agree on much, if anything, but both share the view there's a crisis along the southern border, but say the other party is responsible for it. All right. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. The CBC's Richard Madden in Washington. More than 100 Palestinians have reportedly been killed while waiting for aid deliveries in Gaza City. It is not clear what happened. The Gaza-run health ministry says the crowd was hit by Israeli fire. But government spokesperson Avi Haman gave a different explanation. My understanding thus far is that uh, humanitarian aid vehicles entered the Gaza Strip and were overwhelmed by uh, people attempting to essentially loot to to take that uh, aid um, from those aid trucks. Hyman says the drivers panicked and plowed into the crowds. President Joe Biden says the U.S. is checking reports of the people being fired on by Israeli forces, adding the deadly incident will complicate talks on a ceasefire. The fate of Quebec's controversial secularism law could be determined today. The province's Court of Appeal will issue its ruling on the constitutionality of Bill 21. The five-year-old law bans government employees from wearing religious symbols. Robert Leckie is the dean of McGill University's Faculty of Law. He says today's decision is important because the case could go to the federal Supreme Court. We've got a, a, a trial decision. We'll now have an appellate decision. These things build in a very important way the record that will reach the Supreme Court of Canada. The decision is expected this afternoon. Statistics Canada has just given us the latest snapshot on the health of the economy. The agency has released its 2023 fourth quarter report for gross domestic product. It edged up slightly. The announcement is being watched by the Bank of Canada ahead of its interest rate announcement next week. Our senior business reporter, Peter Armstrong, has more. These data paint the picture of an economy that's still chugging along in spite of all of the many headwinds it's facing. We've spent much of the last 
six months or so waiting and watching for signs of a recession, that double whammy of inflation and soaring borrowing costs were always going to slow the economy. The question was by how much. So an expansion through the final three months of 2023 mean we have once again avoided a technical recession, which of course is just two back-to-back quarters of negative growth. And the economy shrank in Q3, but stats can revise that in today's numbers to a more modest contraction today and found Q4 grew at a 1% annualized rate. Now, the advanced estimate for January also indicates another positive showing. So look, the economy is indisputably weak, but it's keeping its head above water and setting up a very real possibility of a soft landing where inflation comes back to normal without causing an outright recession. Peter Armstrong, CBC News, Toronto. Today is February 29th, a day that comes round just once every four years. And if you are one of the millions of Canadians on a fixed annual salary, you're not being paid for this extra leap year day. As Philip de Montigny reports, it could be costing you hundreds of dollars. In the heart of Toronto's financial district, many who earn a yearly salary weren't too happy to find out they won't be getting paid for that extra day of work. You still have your expenses for that day. I think we should be compensated. If I'm working, I want to be paid. Some argue it's a give and take. Earning a salary comes with other benefits and more flexibility. I'm not necessarily a 9 to 5 kind of gal, even if that's what my contract says. It's a quarter of a day every four years, so that doesn't really move that bottom line for me a whole lot. But for some, it can add up to hundreds of dollars. Crunching the latest numbers from Statistics Canada, the average salaried worker would be losing out on $351 for a typical eight-hour day. And with more than six and a half million people earning a fixed annual salary, employers collectively save more than $2 billion. We use the term wage theft. Ella Bedard is a lawyer with the Workers Action Centre. She says unpaid leap days is part of a broader issue. Employers who don't pay overtime, public holidays, and even withhold employee benefits. People are feeling it more because every dollar counts when the cost of living is as high as it is now. Some contracts include pay for leap days, but it's still pretty uncommon. It's up to employers, and currently, no law forces them to adjust salaries for that extra day. Philippe de Montigny, CBC News, Toronto. And that is the latest national and international news from World Report News Anytime, cbcnews.ca. I'm Marcia Young. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.